It is a delight to be with you this morning. This is my first time to West Michigan, and uh, I appreciate you all making sure I get the full experience, (laughs) although there's not a foot or two of snow out there, nice, bitter, cold. (laughs) But I will say, as cold as the weather is outside, um, the fellowship has been warm and sweet with Brother Rick, Brother Kevin, their families. I've enjoyed all those that I've interacted with here. I'm grateful to be here. Got to see the Great Lakes for the very first time uh, yesterday. Got sandblasted standing out there in the wind, but um, what a pleasure to be here. Let's pray again and then look at the word together. Our Heavenly Father, we bow our hearts and our heads before you. And God, our greatest desire is to behold your son this morning, to see him in his glory, to delight in him, to respond and to honor him. And Father, we recognize, even as we attempt that, that our worship will be inadequate. It will not be all that he deserves. And I thank you that his own blood covers all that inadequacy and that we can boldly draw near to you this morning. Father, I thank you for your Holy Spirit because, God, we recognize that that human wisdom, human eloquence is no help to us this morning. Persuasive words cannot Open deaf ears or blind eyes can't make dead hearts alive, cannot transform us. We need the power of your Holy Spirit in our presence this morning, and we ask God that He would do what He delights to do to exalt your Son and to edify your people and to call sinners to the Savior. Would you do that, Father? For your glory and our good, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if if you were here during the Sunday school hour, you're aware that I work for a mission society and, and that I even served for some years as a missionary in Africa. So as you might expect, I would like to preach on the subject of missions today. And earlier this morning, during the Bible study time, I explained what Heart Cry Mission Society does and how we do it. But in this time, I want to deal with the much bigger question in all of missions, in all the missions work around the world. That is the question of why? Why do we do missions? Why this great missions endeavor? What is our motive? And what is the goal that we're aiming at? I mean, why would we invest millions and millions of dollars? Why would some leave their comfortable home and their loved ones to go to the other side of the world? Why have many down through the years given their very lives to take the gospel to unreached people? Why? Is it duty? I mean, Christ commanded us, so we must go. Is it Is our motive gratitude? Well, Christ gave his life for us. We must go for him. 
Is our primary motive compassion for perishing souls? Well, obviously, all of those are good motives, right? They're all, they're all right. Yes, we should do missions out of duty, out of gratitude, out of compassion, but none of those is primary. I would like to suggest this morning that our primary motive in all mission work and our primary goal, they are the one and the same, worship, worship. You might say, well, wait a minute. So we're going to invest all of these resources, all of this time, all this effort, so that folks can sit in a building like this and sing and pray and listen to preaching. Well, I I hope they do that. But I'm also talking about worship in a much bigger sense than only the corporate worship of the local church. So when I talk about worship being our motive and our goal, here's my definition. Worship is the beholding, the enjoying, and responding to the glory of God, primarily expressed in His Son, Jesus Christ. Worship is beholding, enjoying, and responding to the glory of God, expressed primarily in His Son, Jesus Christ. And when I am finished today, I pray that you see the priority of worship and you see it in a way that you are willing to pay any price to see Christ receive the worship he deserves in your own lives, in this church, in your community, and in every nation of the world. Now to show that missions is our highest motive and our highest goal, I'm sorry, that worship is our highest motive and goal in missions, We're going to look at what I think is the most powerful missions passage in the Bible. And no, we're not going to Matthew 28, and we're not going even to the book of Acts, but to the passage that Brother Rick just read, Revelation chapter 5. So turn there again if if you're not already there. Revelation 5, and for the sake of time, I won't reread the entire text, but we will just begin to walk through it. I have a simple three-point outline, not a short one, but a simple one this morning. We will be looking at, number one, our dilemma, from our perspective, our dilemma with history. And number two, we're going to look at the king of history. And number three, the goal of all history. So our dilemma with history. As we begin in chapter 5 and verse 1, we have the continuation of the scene from chapter 4. And Brother Rick, I probably should have just had you read 4 and 5 so that we had more of the context, but I didn't think about it. In chapter 4, the Apostle John saw the throne of God, and he can only describe for us this vague figure on a throne surrounded by this brilliant rainbow of color and flashes of lightning and deafening rumbles of thunder. And around this throne are four very strange creatures constantly praising the holiness of God. And then 24 elders, I believe representing all the people of God, Old and New Covenant, who leave their thrones and they fall down in worship before God's throne And as this scene continues to unfold, John sees something in the hand of the one on the throne. 
Chapter 5, verse 1. I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. A book, more, more probably a scroll, written on the inside and on the back. Normally a scroll was only written on the inside, not on the back. And it is sealed with seven seals. One was normally sufficient. So what is the, the symbology here? It symbolizes the revelation of the continuation of history to the end of the age, the culmination of what we know as human history. The writing on the back shows the fullness, the completeness of God's revealed plan. There's nothing else to add. It is full and complete. The seven seals emphasizing the perfection of God's plan. So here's the point of the imagery. This is the full, complete, perfect plan held in the hand of the one who sits on heaven's throne. The absolute sovereign Lord of the universe, the maker and ruler of all that exists. What is God saying to his church? What's he saying to his people here? He wants us to know he has sovereignly predetermined a perfect plan for all of our history down to the last detail. Now that must be quite a plan, right? And can you just see John leaning forward intently? His eyes are wide, his mouth is open. I mean, wouldn't you in this scene? What a revelation must be in this scroll. And then we encounter a problem and a dramatic pause in verses 2 and 3. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Now we need to understand a couple of things better here. First of all, the goal. What is the goal of opening this book, of breaking the seals? Well, what happens as these seals are broken? The final events of history begin to unfold. So the breaking of the seals not only reveals the future, but actually begins to bring those events to pass. The breaking of the seals both explains God's plan and executes that plan. So with that in mind, a search is made for somebody who is worthy to reveal and to carry out God's plan. Now this word worthy has at least three beautiful connotations that will be fulfilled in this text. First of all, worthy because of moral character. Secondly, worthy because of rank. Third, worthy because of ability. When it says in verse 3, no one was able to open the book, the Greek literally, no, there was no one with power. No one with the power to open this scroll. So this mighty angel issues a summons. Who is worthy? Who has the purity? Who has the position of authority? Who has the power? to approach God on his throne, take this book from his hand, reveal his plan, and bring it to pass. 
And this mighty angel's voice echoes through all of heaven, all of earth, even Hades, the place of the dead. His thunderous voice is heard in every corner of the universe. Who is worthy? Now, an angel with a voice like that is pretty mighty, right? And yet even his cry confesses he's not worthy. He's not able. But he's not alone in his confession. John says, no one, no man, no beast, no angel in all the universe steps forward to take that book. Not Michael, the mighty archangel, who has never sinned, by the way. Not the burning seraphs who have dwelt every moment of their existence in the holy presence of God. Not these strange and mighty creatures that we see in chapter 4. Not the wise elders who surround the throne. No one dares approach this throne of brilliant color, flashing lightning, and take the book out of the hand of Almighty I Am. And John waits, and he waits for someone to step forward to take this scroll, and when no creature is found worthy, how does he react? Verse 4, Then I began to weep greatly, because no one was found worthy to open the book or look into it. John wept loudly. He's sobbing. Why? Let's look back at what he was promised in chapter 4, verse 1. After these things, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. John was promised a revelation of the consummation of world history. Come up here. What is John coming up from? He's coming up from exile as the last of all the apostles. All his brothers, all his fellow apostles have been executed, beheaded, crucified, burned alive. John has seen and he has felt the iron fist of the Roman Empire, the fury of Satan against the church. The church is a tiny group, many of them slaves and women with no cultural power, and they're being imprisoned and beheaded and crucified, burned alive and fed to lions. And John has been invited to see God's plan for the end of the ages. There has to be a happy ending, but how? How will it happen in the midst of so much hatred, so much evil, so much suffering? How will Satan and the empires of this world be defeated? How will the church ever be victorious? When will the suffering of the saints be over? How will Christ's eternal kingdom finally be established in the earth? Do any of you feel that this morning? Do you feel that when you watch the news? You feel that when you see what's happening in our country and around the world? You look at all the chaos and all the cruelty and you wonder, there has to be a happy ending, but how will it happen? 
When will Jesus finally say, enough? Enough sickness, enough sin, enough suffering, enough death, enough abuse and corruption, enough war, enough. This is my world. So John has seen the glory of God on the throne and he has seen this book in his hand and he knows this must be a marvelous plan and he wants to hear it so badly. And so John weeps, not only for himself, but for the whole church. He has come up as their representative to carry back a message of hope in their storm of persecution. John thinks, is there no one, no one in the whole universe that can reveal and carry out this plan? John Piper asks a brilliant question that no other commentator I consulted ever asked about this text. Why doesn't God the Father himself just open the book and begin revealing his plan? Why is someone else needed to open it? Well, to answer that, we look ahead to the seven seals as they are broken. And the seventh seal is seven trumpets. And when the seventh trumpet is blown, we reach the end, the consummation. Look at chapter 11 briefly with me. Chapter 11, verses 15 to 18. Then the seventh angel sounded and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God the Almighty, who are and who were, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. And the nations were enraged, and your wrath came, and the time came for the dead to be judged, and the time to reward your bondservants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, the small and the great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. So here is the summary statement of the conclusion of human history, bringing wrath and judgment for some, And reward for others. Reward and blessing for the prophets and the saints. Wait a minute. You mean saints like David? Who committed adultery and murder? You mean reward for prophets like Isaiah? Who himself confessed he was a man of unclean lips? You mean sinners like me and like you? who once hated and dishonored God, we're going to be called saints by God and rewarded by him while other sinners are destroyed in his wrath? How can this be? What what God is this? Do you see the dilemma? Who can open this book? Who can break these seals and bring about God's plan of wrath for some and reward for others? And who can do this in such a way that God is not a corrupt judge who punishes the sin of some and overlooks the sin of others? Who can do this in a way that defends the glory of God's name even as he gives grace to those who trampled that name in the mud? 
Who can do this? And now we turn to the king of history. That's the dilemma. Now we come to the king of history. Finally, John is told that one has come to take the book and to open it. Look at his description. First of all, we see that he is perfect royalty. Verse 5, one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. So this one who will take the book is the lion of Judah and the root of David. Now, what are the meaning of those titles? Well, if you were a Jew, you would instantly recognize the meaning. These are titles of royalty. Judah is the tribe of David, the royal line of God's chosen people. As the root of David, he is the source of David's kingdom. As the lion of Judah, he is the summation of David's kingdom. All the glory of all of Israel's kings are but a dim reflection of this lion's kingdom. So you remember those three connotations of worthy. Rank and authority, power and moral character. So this lion is worthy in the first sense of rank and authority. He is the ultimate royalty. He is the supreme king of God's chosen people. So he is worthy by his rank and authority to break the seals and open the book. But he's also worthy in the second sense, power, because he is a conquering king and lion. Notice at the end of the verse, he has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. Notice his ability, his worthiness to open this book is directly linked to his conquest. And that word overcome is a word of finality. He has battled his enemy and forever subdued him. So this lion's complete final victory shows that he is worthy, not only by his rank and authority as king, but by his power to break these seals and open this book. Now what about that third sense, moral character? Well, now we see not only is he perfect royalty, He is a perfect redeemer. Because with the elder's announcement, John stops weeping. Someone has stepped forward to take the book. John lifts his head. He he wipes the tears from his eyes. And with great excitement, he looks toward the throne to see this great lion. Now, what do you think he's expecting to see? I mean, when you think of a lion, what do you think of? Right, strong, majestic, dangerous. And when he looks to the throne, what does he see? Verse 6, And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb, standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. This is a very strange lion. Now, we can't elaborate on all of it. I wish we could, but I will at least make a few observations. First of all, notice he is a lamb standing as if slain. A lamb once slaughtered, now standing before the throne. Alive, but bearing the marks of death. 
And not just any death. He is the symbolic lamb. So this is a sacrificial death that he bears the marks of. Just a side note. Isn't it a precious truth that Jesus Christ in heaven still bears the marks of his atoning death? Think on that. I mean, how could he ever forget his people when he bears the marks of the death that purchased them? How could the Father ever deny a request from our great intercessor when he shows his Father the scars that purchased every grace we will ever need to make it to his presence? In all his heavenly glory, the lamb still bears the marks of his redeeming death. And as a lamb who was sacrificed and is now alive, that proves he was an acceptable sacrifice, right? A pure and spotless lamb. And so remember those three aspects of worthy. We've already seen he is worthy by his position of authority as king. He is worthy by his power in conquering his enemies. And as the pure sacrificial lamb, he is worthy by moral character. The only worthy one to open the book, to break the seals. Now concerning his worthiness to open this book, notice the correlation between verse 5 and verse 9. The end of verse 5, he has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And look at verse 9, they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and break its seals, for you were slain. You see that? He has overcome so as to open. Worthy are you to take the book and open the seals, for you were slain. He is worthy and able because of his conquest. But how did he conquer? In being slain. The lion conquered in becoming the sacrificial lamb, suffering the just wrath of his father as a substitute for sinners. And in that one substitutionary death, he forever defeated all God's enemies. I don't know if anybody could express it better than Spurgeon. He wrote in one of his messages, Golgotha was the common place of execution. It was one of death's greatest castles. Here death ruled as the grim lord of that stronghold. And I think death thought it a splendid triumph when he saw the master impaled and bleeding in his dominion of destruction. Little did he know that his grave was to be plundered, that he himself would be destroyed by that crucified son of man. Our great hero, the destroyer of death, slew the monster in his own castle and dragged that dragon captive from his own den. That is this lamb and lion. And not only is he a perfect redeemer, but even as our redeemer... He is the perfect ruler because not only is he a sacrificial lamb, he is standing though slain, but he's also a very odd lamb with seven horns and seven eyes. 
Again, we have to understand the symbolic language. Horns are symbolic of strength. Eyes, symbolic of knowledge. Seven, again, the number of perfection. So this mighty lamb, this king of heaven and earth, has perfect knowledge and perfect power. Now, again, is that important in John's context? He's representing the persecuted church, suffering under the empire of Rome. And yet in heaven, John sees this lamb, this sovereign Lord, who knows all that his church is going through, who controls all that afflicts his church. And he wants his church to know, I love you. I know what's happening to you. I am in control and power over it. Nothing happens apart from my will. Do you see how only this lion and lamb could bring God's plan for history to its perfect conclusion? Giving grace to sinners and yet preserving the glory of God in his justice. And if you are here this morning and you are a sinner still lost and separated from God, I want you to know he is a lion. Jesus Christ is a lion. He is mighty. He is majestic. And he is dangerous to his enemies who have blasphemed his name and rebelled against his law. But if you would this morning tremble before his might and his majesty, and in that trembling rather than run from him, if instead by faith you would flee to him, you will find him a lamb. Gentle and humble and kind and compassionate to sinners. I pray you find him as a lamb before you meet him one day as the lion. So we've looked at our dilemma with history. We've looked at this king of history, this lion and lamb. Now, lastly, we're going to look at the goal of all history. Let's move into verse 7. He came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. So as the Lamb steps forward to take this book, to reveal the Father's plan and put those events in motion, those creatures and elders from chapter 4 fall down in worship, and it says they sing a new song. How is it new? Well, if we were to go back to chapter 4, they've already praised God for his attributes and his character in verse 8. And then they praise him as the creator and sustainer in verse 11. But now they turn the page to a new song in heaven's hymn book, And it is the sweetest hymn, the song of redemption. But folks, please don't ever forget this. God 
did not have to save humanity to get glory for himself. He would have been perfectly just to condemn us all to hell. And you know what? The angels still would have praised him for all eternity, for his perfect attributes, for his creative power. So how much more beautiful is the praise of heaven when you add these songs of redeeming love and sovereign grace? And for all eternity, the ages will roll on and on. And you know what? The subject of the Lamb's sacrifice will never get boring to us. We will continually see fresh glories of his work on our behalf. And we will sing new songs to him. Now let's dig quickly through this song and see the treasures here. Worthy. Are you worthy? Are you? We've already seen his worthiness to open this scroll is linked to his conquest as a sacrificial lamb. But look what his conquering death accomplished. Worthy are you to take the book and break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men. His death purchased. His death did more than make salvation possible. He actually purchased a people for God from every culture on the earth. So a purchase was made. And what was purchased? Men, women, children from every tribe and tongue and people and nation Describing various divisions of people from the smallest to the largest. From the largest nation to the tiniest tribe in the jungle, there is not a single division of the human race that is untouched by God's redeeming grace. Christ has purchased worshipers from every one of them. And I would have never moved my family to Zambia if I didn't believe that. But look also at the price. We've seen a purchase was made. We've seen who was purchased. Now look at this purchase price. With your blood. You purchased with your blood. Emphasizing the infinite purchase price. The blood of eternal God in the flesh. A concept that just blows our mind. One drop of the creator's blood is worth more than the entire human race combined. Worth more than all the stars, all the planets. And this shows that, and and you're going to cringe at this maybe, but bear with me, this does show that redeeming people from every culture was of infinite value to God. Now, if we just stop there, And say, look how valuable people are to God. Well, we're like, we're no different than all the ear-tickling preachers today. Everybody will applaud and say, yes, yes, we humans are infinitely valuable. So I said, bear with me, because we don't stop there. Because there's something else in this sentence. Why was the purchase made? We've seen who was purchased, people from every culture. We've seen the price, the blood of the eternal creator, but why was the purchase made? 
There's a little phrase between the word purchase and before the price with your blood and then what was purchased, people from every people group on the planet. And it's the little phrase, for God. For God. Worthy are you to take the book and break its seals for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood. People. You hear the primary emphasis of this purchase. We are the beneficiaries, but it's not all about us. We are purchased for God. Yes, people are valuable, but what is most valuable is that God is worshipped by every people and every language on this planet. That is what justified the infinite price of Jesus' blood shed for sinners. Now, look what else this death accomplished. Not only did he purchase people for God from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, but look at verse 10. And let's have some fun thinking about this. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. I just want to pause and and, and let this one sink in. Former rebels, former God-haters who deserved hell, now rulers and priests to God reigning over his universe. Like I said, let's have some fun imagining this. First of all, think of this concept of ruling the universe Imagine one universal kingdom of God ruled by people from every nation and culture on the earth. Cultures that once hated each other. Cultures that fought wars to advance their own culture over the other culture. Those who were Americans and communist Chinese ruling now together for God. The French and the English and the Germans that have fought so many wars through the centuries to defeat one another, now ruling together for God. Arabs and Jews ruling together for God. The Hutu and the Tutsi of Rwanda that slaughtered one another. Russians and Ukrainians. All these cultures now united for one purpose, to govern the universe with only one agenda, what is the will of our God? Think about the Olympics, right? Every few years we have the Olympics, and and for weeks we watch our nation's athletes try to defeat another nation's athletes. Well, it used to be about national pride. Now it's just about individuals showing how great they are, but... Let's think about the way the Olympics used to be. All this national pride and and competition. Now imagine all those nations, you know, the opening and closing ceremony where they all march in with their flags. Someday people from all those nations exerting all their talent, all their energy for one thing, to do the will of God. Now, let's add something else in our imagination to this scene. Because not only are they rulers, they're priests. Priests. Just imagine with me former 
worshipers from every world religion. Italians, who once followed the Antichrist in the Vatican. And next to them, Arabs from Syria, who prayed five times a day to Allah. And next to those Arabs, devout Jews from Jerusalem. And next to them, Nepalese, who once wore the orange robes of a Buddhist monk. And next to them, Indians that bathed in the river Ganges and prayed to thousands of gods. And next to them, the fierce Maasai from the plains of Tanzania that once practiced witchcraft and prayed to the ancestors. Men and women from every false religion on the planet. And now what are they doing? They are now priests to the one true God, offering praise and worship to the only God and creator. Imagine this. Just let your mind grasp this. Something that all the education and all the philosophy and all the politics and all the religion of men could never accomplish. And what centuries of all man's wisdom could never do, Jesus Christ did it through his blood on the cross. I'm not talking about some silly universalism here. But I'm talking about men and women from every human culture, every government, every religion, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, reborn, transformed by the Holy Spirit, now worshiping God and reigning as his representatives. Hmm. Wasn't that God's original intention for Adam and Eve? Do you see how the culmination of all human history is a return to his original intention? In the creation, only now he has added the beauty of the story of redemption to that. Folks, all of history is designed and destined for this moment when God receives the beauty of multicolored worship from those he has redeemed in every culture of the earth. That is what we work for. That is why I took my family to Zambia to find the worshipers that Christ had already purchased among the lozy people of Western Zambia. And church, that is why you exist here in Holland, Michigan. Are you willing to say by the grace and the power of God, we will find his sheep in this community, no matter what the cost, and we will bring them to heaven and we will worship with them before the throne. This is it. People from all, from every world culture united in worshiping God, reigning in his kingdom. That brings great glory to God and displays his infinite power of Jesus' blood for eternity. This lamb, this lamb had the power to endure the infinite wrath of his father the power to pay for the sins and purchase the salvation of his sheep from every people group on the planet and the power to transform those wicked rebels into royal priests. Is it any wonder now that the angels can't hold back and they have to join in praising their God? Look at verse 11. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne 
and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Now let's pause. Don't let the majesty of this scene slip us by. What's a myriad? A myriad's actually a technical number in the Greek, 10,000. So myriad of myriads is 10,000 times 10,000. I'm sure we've got a lot of good math brains in here better than mine, but I think that's 100 million. 100 million angels. But John says that's not even enough. So he adds thousands of thousands. So 100 million angels plus thousands and thousands more. A vast host of angels, impossible to count. Praising the Lamb with a thunderous roar. What what does that sound like? I I had the great privilege uh, this past fall of, uh, I'm from Missouri originally, so I got to attend a Kansas City Chiefs football game in Arrowhead Stadium, loudest stadium in the country. I heard 70,000 human voices roaring on good plays, and there were a lot of them. We stomped the Pittsburgh Steelers, but I know what 70,000 voices sounds like. I can't imagine 100 million angels plus thousands and thousands more. So we end, oh, we should have read chapter 4. We ended chapter 4 with Four creatures and 24 elders praising God on the throne. In chapter 5, we now add the song of redemption, the new song. And then the choir of the redeemed is joined by the cries of hundreds of millions of angels. But our chorus grows one more time. Verse 13. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea... And all things in them I heard saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying amen, and the elders fell down and worshiped. Every creature, doesn't say every person, says every creature. And I might be wrong, and you can laugh at me, but I think he's including animal life here. (laughs) You talk about, I mean, what is this choir like? Can you imagine hearing eagles and elephants, deer and dogs? Staying with Brother Kevin, I was just thinking about little Lucy, you know. (laughs) Given a voice to praise their creator. Now, I think they've been praising their creator ever since the creation, but we just didn't understand them. But every bird and animal and fish, perhaps, suddenly given voice to praise their creator. What a song. So from the beginning of chapter 4 to the end of chapter 5, this choir just keeps growing. This concert in heaven builds to this crescendo when every creature in all creation praises God and the Lamb. And the scene ends where it began with the elders falling down before the throne in worship. Brothers and sisters, 
It's not too hard to figure out the point of this passage. But it's not just the point of the passage. It's the point of all creation. It's the point of all history. It's all about the eternal worship of God and the Lamb. So in closing, two applications to us. Two concluding applications. Number one, church, please, please, please do not miss the priority of worship now. If worship is the point of all creation, if it is the goal of all history, I think that would make it pretty important right now. We cannot get so busy as a church, just busy working, that we forget worship, whether it's corporately, as the church gathered, in our homes, as families, individually, each day, making that intentional effort to behold the glory of Christ, to delight in his glory, and then respond appropriately. Worship is not something we postpone till heaven. Right now we just be busy working and we'll worship later. A.W. Tozer said this, The primary purpose of God in redemption is to restore us again to worship. The church conquered the world with their joyous religion because and only because they were worshipers. And when the Christian church in any generation ceases to be a company of worshipers, their religion becomes empty works and meaningless ritual. So don't miss the priority of worship. But my second application, worship does come before work. Worship does empower our work. But folks, this heavenly worship in Revelation 5 is worth working really hard for. Even suffering for. Here's a question for you to ponder later today and throughout this week. If this worship in Revelation 5 cost the lamb everything... What's it going to cost us? How will these worshipers from every culture on the planet be gathered? Jesus told us. He said, as the Father sent me, I also send you. And why was Jesus sent? To suffer and die to rescue sinners? Why are we sent? Jesus also said, I send you out as sheep among wolves. What do wolves do to sheep? He warned the disciples, the world will hate you. They will kill you because of me. Do we really think we're going to gather these worshipers for God in a fallen world without suffering? You may have heard of the Moravian Brethren. It was a church movement in Europe in the early 1700s. They sent their first missionaries 60 years before William Carey went to India. And over 150 years, they sent 2,000 missionaries around the world. Many of those missionaries suffered and died 
in very hard and hostile places. And you may have heard their battle cry, the battle cry of Moravian missions. It's a phrase that's very popular at Heart Cry. May the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his sufferings. May this lamb that was slain receive the reward. The reward of worship from every culture on the planet. The reward of his sufferings. And folks, that cry can only come from people who have first seen the glory of Christ in worship. And then they desire to see their Christ worshipped by every person on this planet. Dear brothers and sisters, this is the beginning and the end of all missions. That the Lamb would receive the worship he deserves from every people group on the planet because he is worthy. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, our hearts are once again humbled as we consider this scene in heaven, as we consider this lion and lamb, your perfect son, the the king of the universe who would humble himself, who would take on our flesh, who would offer himself in perfect obedience to you on our behalf and then offer himself under your wrath for our atonement. Oh God, we confess we cannot grasp such a love, such a humility. Your plan is beyond our comprehension. But Lord, if we have seen a glimpse of his glory today, would you by your Holy Spirit give us the passion and the ability to go out and to honor this Christ in our workplace tomorrow, in our homes tonight. May his praise be on our lips. May his character be displayed in our lifestyles. May we be ready to give an answer to those who wonder why we have any hope in this chaotic world. And oh, Father, if there is one here this morning who has not yet bowed the knee to King Jesus, who has not yet seen their sin before a holy God, who has not yet fled to Christ for rescue, Father, you are worthy of their worship. Would you call them to yourself now? We ask in Jesus' name, amen.